Talkers. Welcome to Speak and Destroy, episode 65. Speaking and Destroy is a podcast featuring interviews about Metallica, and I am your host, Ryan J. Downey. My guest this episode is Bob Nalbandian. Bob met Lars Ulrich in Huntington Beach, California before the formation of Metallica. Envious of the Young Danes' new wave of British heavy metal records, Bob was witness to the first shows by Metallica, Lars, James, Dave, and Ron. In 1982, at age 17, he started a fanzine called The Headbanger, interviewing then-unsigned bands like Metallica, Slayer, and Armored Saint. He wrote for magazines like Hit Parader and Cream through the 80s and 90s, and worked for Enigma and Roadrunner Records. He was even instrumental in Marty Friedman joining Megadeth. Bob talks about Metallica's early days, his career, and the documentary films he's directed, including 2020's Inside Metal, Bay Area Godfathers. Speaking Destroy podcast theme is composed, performed, and produced by Scott Mellinger. Visit SpeakingDestroy.com. Support us on Patreon to get bonus episodes from my interview archives, including conversations with Glenn Danzig and Kirk Hammett. Follow Speaking Destroy on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Follow me on Twitter at Ryan Downey and on Instagram at SuperheroHQ. And please be sure to leave a five-star rating and a nice little review in Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast platform of choice. Speaking Destroy is part of the Pop Curse Podcast Network. It includes Pop Curse, featuring musicians talking movies. If you want to hear Spencer from Ice Nine Kills and I talking about The Shining for an hour, that's your podcast. Guys from Twisted talking about Halloween, Blothar the Berserker of Gwar talking about Robocop, and much more. Pop Curse Podcast Network also includes No Prize from God, which features conversations with creative people about belief, unbelief, and everything between. Interviews with a lot of Speak and Destroy friendly artists, including members of Emperor, Behemoth, Sepultura, Under Oath, Demon Hunter, and many more. So here it is, my conversation with Bob Nalbandian. This is Speak and Destroy. Uh, I, I grew up in Huntington Beach, Orange County, which is about an hour south of uh, Los Angeles, and I, uh, you know, was a metalhead pretty early on. I'm, I'm uh, 55 now, so I'm at the prime age for the whole, uh, you know, uh, 80s metal explosion, yeah. uh, which, which, which was great, which is fantastic living, you know, in and around L.A. at the time. Um, I know this is a Metallica podcast uh uh, you know, Lars lived in Newport Beach, which mm-hmm. was about uh, 20 minutes south of us. And, you know, through my friend, uh, uh, Patrick Scott, 
uh, we became to we became pretty good friends with Lars when he even prior to him forming Metallica. Oh wow! So, See, yeah, I didn't, I didn't even know that when I invited you on. <laughs> well, That's incredible. I figured I'd bring that up uh, right away. Since, yeah. uh, like I said, this is a Metallica podcast. Yeah, we um, you know, used to go to his uh, condo in, in Newport and just used to like drool over his new wave of British heavy metal collection because, uh, you know, growing up, I, uh, you know, I was fortunate. I had an older cousin and he got me into, um, you know, uh, Sabbath, Deep Purple, you know, Zeppelin, um, Alice Cooper, all that stuff uh, very early on, you know, when I was, uh, you know, nine years old or so. And uh, so uh, I, I grew up, you know, pretty much uh, into metal early on from the, um, from the seventies. And, uh, when uh, the new wave of British heavy metal hit, that was just like a huge new thing for me. So I got really uh, involved in that, and I started a fanzine called The Headbanger in uh, April of 1982. Oh, wow. wow. Uh, yeah, so that was uh, around the same time as I know, uh, you know, Brian Slagle had his fanzine, uh, New Heavy Metal Review. This was prior to him doing Metal Blade. Mm -hmm. uh, that was one of the first, and then I think Ron Quintana uh, up in of San course. Francisco. Yeah, who, uh, the, the, <laughs> the guy who came up with the name Metallica. <laughs> Absolutely. You the band could have been called Headbanger. <laughs> <laughs> or Metal Mania, maybe. Uh, yeah. I, I could have been Headbanger. Who knows? If, uh, <laughs> but, uh, uh, yeah, Ron uh, had his, his fanzine. And, you know, and so I started uh, uh, just, just after that. And uh, it was a cool thing, man. We were all pen pals. We uh got really involved in the underground metal scene and tape trading and and all that fun stuff and all the european magazines you know of course karanga just come out and you know the smaller magazines from the uk like uh, uh metal forces and Ard shock magazine mm -hmm. from holland and you know we were all huge fans of all that stuff so uh uh, you know, we got into the metal scene early on. I was fortunate to catch, you know, Metallica's very first show they did at wow. a small club called Radio City yeah. in Anaheim, uh, which was uh, fantastic, right? Yeah, I mean, that was like our stomping grounds. We had Radio City and a, a even cooler club called the Woodstock right next door. And they were like the key clubs for, you know, uh, a, a lot of the L.A. bands when they played Orange County. But uh, but mostly the, the heavier bands like Metallica, uh, you know, of course, Slayer. Uh, you know, Dark Angel, they all got their start playing uh, the, the Woodstock and uh, uh, and Radio City. And then there was another club uh, a little further south in uh, uh, Costa Mesa called uh, the Concert Factory, which used mm -hmm. to be the old cuckoo's nest for all yes. you punk fans. Yeah, I, I, there's some, some great photos of the misfits at the cuckoo's nest. Yeah, yeah, there's some uh, there's actually a great uh, a documentary about that club called Clockwork Orange County uh, oh. available on Netflix. So I, I advise you guys uh uh, anyone listening, check it out if you want to get a good history about the early uh, uh, punk scene. But that that uh, changed over to a concert factory, and of course, you know, Metallica did a lot of their early shows there as well. So yeah, their uh, yeah. uh, their fourth or or third show, however you want to des describe it, since they did two shows opening for Saxon. Um, I had Biff Byford on the podcast a while back, and and we talked a, a bit about that show. You know, I'm I'm a little I'm younger than you, but. I'm old enough that I also uh, w was there for the, the fanzine and the pen pal letter writing era, you know, when I was a teenager and getting into punk and metal and stuff like that. My friends and I did fanzines and, um, you know, I interviewed bands over the mail. You know, I had one band that in Seattle that I I wrote the questions on loose leaf notebook paper and mailed it to them. And they sent me back a cassette of the singer answering the questions and. Uh, and it's funny you mentioned Metal Blade because it was early enough that 
I uh, I got a letter from. It's just so funny how things evolve and change. I remember getting a letter from Metal Blade, like a promo letter that just had a list of a bunch of different band members that were on the label and their home phone numbers. And it was oh, just, yeah. just went out to the press of like, if you want to do an interview, you know, right. and I remember calling like one of the guys from Flotsam and like his mom answering the phone. <laughs> like, he's on tour. And I'm, you know, I was like 15. Right. Um, should not have, you know, should not have had that piece of paper in my hands. Well, that's how it was back then. Cause you know, this is obviously before cell phones, before yeah. the internet, but that was the way to connect. And most people, you know, in the eighties, like I, I, I used to get calls all the time. We had, you know, you didn't even have your own phone line. You, it was usually your parents had a mm-hmm. line, you know, maybe two phones, one in, in the, like the living room or kitchen and one in their room, you yeah, know? So if exactly. the phone rang, they would always answer, you know, Bob, you got some call. And it would be, you know, uh, you know, some, you know, Carrie King or uh, someone you know, call that. <laughs> you know, so, and you didn't really have the privacy to talk, you know, but uh, yeah, yeah, my friends and I, when we would put on shows, this was growing up in Indiana, you know, we'd put our home phone numbers on the flyer for information call. Yeah, that's all you have is a home phone number. Yeah. And once you got your phone number changed, you lost contact with that person. It's like, you know, <laughs> yes. you, you, until you saw them again. You couldn't look them up on Facebook or on the Internet. So, yeah. you know, you, you lose connection with a lot of cool people. But, uh, yeah. So, so how did you first uh, meet Lars? Uh, that's an interesting story. We, uh, 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 From what I recall, Patrick Scott put an ad or, or saw an ad in – uh, the local paper recycler, the, mm-hmm. the famous one that Dave Mustaine responded to. <laughs> yep. Uh, and he saw that ad and uh, uh, Pat was a practicing guitar player, a fairly new, not really, you know, he wasn't even really necessarily looking to audition for Metallica, but he saw this ad saying, uh, you know, band looking, you know, influenced by like Motorhead, Saxon and Tigers of Pantang or something to that extent. And Pat's freaking out. Cause you know, he's thinking, you know, only, you know, me and him are the only ones that know <laughs> right. about these fans, you know, <laughs> right. especially in Orange County, you know. And he's like, well, I got to call this guy. So he calls the guy and he said he was just on the phone for like an hour and uh, uh, then went over to his house uh, and, and checked out his record collection. And, and of course, Pat immediately calls me that night. He goes, dude, I just met this guy. You know, he's, he's from he's uh, I think uh, we we thought he was. Dutch uh, uh, from the beginning because there was a record store in in Costa Mesa called uh, uh, Music Market, which was a great record store. Awesome. They had a ton of they had all the great imports. You could order all the imports. That's where we got all the neat record singles and all the, you know, the Krang and all that. And and the guy behind the bus, this is before we even met uh, Lars. I just remember we would go to pick up Krang and they would only have a few issues and they would. You know, we'd call them up and they, they would like sell out. They might only have two issues there and boom, they would sell out. And the guy at, behind the counter would always say, oh, some Dutch kid bought it. <laughs> and, you know, the first Venom single Amazing. comes out on me. You know, some Dutch kid just bought all the copies of it, you know, and you're like, motherfucker, who is this Dutch kid? Oh, I'm sorry. I don't know if I could cuss on No, this. you can. Definitely. Okay. Yeah. Who is this Dutch kid? And then we found out this Dutch kid is, uh, you know, quote unquote Dutch kid was Lars. Uh, but that was that was kind of funny. But Lars, uh, uh, you know, uh, invited Pat over and Pat calls me up. He goes, dude, this guy's got the ultimate 
record collection. And, and that was like the cool thing then. If you had a cool record collection of rare imports mm-hmm. and, and uh, you know, all the new wave of British heavy metal stuff that you we couldn't get our hands on. And he said, you know, this guy knows the guys at Diamond Head. He hung out in England. He had just got back from England with Diamond Head. At yeah. The time. So it's like Gosh, I love, I love those stories. Yeah, I, I had uh, Brian Tatler on the podcast and he was talking oh, all great. about, about yeah, you know, Lars ingratiating himself into their camp way back then. So yeah. Awesome. And he said, yeah, he hung out with Motorhead. And we're, of course, you know, I, it's funny because I probably idolized Lars more back then than when he's this huge right. multi-million dollar, you know, rock star. Because I was like, dude, he hung out with Lenny. You know, when you're like, you know, 16, 17, you're like, damn, no way. You know, so we were like, I go, I got to meet this guy. So, uh, you know, eventually uh, uh, Pat took me over to Lars's house and. He made us tapes, you know, of, of all these new wave of British heavy metal uh, rarities. And, uh, awesome. uh, yeah, so, uh, you know, so this is like 81. This is then he was talking about forming a band. You know, he was a practicing drummer. It wasn't that good. Had a drum set up in, in a spare room. And I, I kept wondering, how the hell could he play drums in Newport Beach? If, if people don't know Newport Beach, it's a very conservative town mm-hmm. in Orange County. Mm-hmm. Uh, he played I guess he had the drum set up in a spare room right there in the condo. But, uh, yeah, that was about the time he had just met uh, met up with uh, James Hetfield and uh, or, you know, a, a little bit prior because this is when he just put out that ad. So, yeah, wow. it's I mean, I, we just you know talk about being in the right place at the right time, you know. So, uh, uh, you know, living there, I saw all the, you know, first show, the very first shows of Slayer, you know, when they were doing covers and, and, and a lot of those 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 bands, you know, I, I, it was a, a perfect growing up in, in Orange County because we had, uh, you know, as I mentioned, the Woodstock Radio City Concert Factory, but it was close enough. We'd go up to the Troubadour to see all the early uh, Troubadour shows and the Country Club and, you know, Whiskey Roxy, all that stuff. So, yeah. You, it was you know what I love uh, reading about that? first show that you mentioned at Radio City in Anaheim, which was March of 82, they played nine songs, and of those nine songs, one was Hit the Lights, and one was Jump in the Fire, which Dave had brought in from his prior band, Panic. Yeah, you know what? I don't recall. I could be mistaken, but I don't know if they even played Jump in the Fire at that first show. I know they played the show because I was at the Saxon shows, too, at the uh Whiskey. I know they did it there. But I'm, uh, you know, and if, in fact, I was talking to Pat. Did they do Jump on the Fire? I think Hit the Lights was the only original they did. Right. Act. Everything else was a cover song. Yeah. Right, right. You know, a right. bunch of, I think, like four Diamond Head songs. And yeah, four Diamond Head songs. They did Blitzkrieg. Sweet Savage. And, yeah. Yeah, uh, Kill, Killing, Killing time. time. And I mean, nobody, yeah. you know, I, I'm sure, I remember when Biff was on, he was saying that, you know, some of the Saxon crew were like, hey, those are Diamond Head songs. But yeah, it's like. Yeah. They weren't necessarily telling the audience, hey, these aren't our songs. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Lars had a great story. I, he did it. One of the previous documentaries I had, he says, you know, uh, he goes, so one of the uh, Saxon roadies, I guess he worked for Diamond Head. He goes, have you heard of a band called Diamond Head? And Lars is like, yeah, of course. We just covered four of their songs, you know, and, uh, you know. Just because... trying to make sure they weren't trying to pull something. Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. You know, so. uh because, uh, you know, back then, nobody knew who Diamond Head was, you know, yeah. they, I mean, they were, you know, very uh, rare. So, but yeah, you're right. Nobody knew that they were, you know, we knew that they were cover songs, but no one in the audience knew. And of course, they didn't say that they were cover songs. So yeah. uh, it, it worked to their advantage, I guess. <laughs> oh, so great. Um, so what do you remember most about, you know, that those guys then and also that scene as it was bubbling up and 
Was there a sense that, I mean, I, I would imagine not way back then, you know, was there a sense that they were going to surpass some of the other bands in terms of popularity or stature? And, and I don't mean, you know, the mega success that they eventually achieved, but I mean, just in terms of like within a scene, like, did they kind of feel like leaders of that scene or what was not the at atmosphere? All. Not at all. And they, they, they will admit to it too. They didn't even feel they were, they were outcasts and they were proud of it. You know, they wanted to do uh, what they wanted to do, be a Europe. I mean, you know, their, their, their dream, you know, was if, if they could become, you know, like the American Motorhead, you know, is mm -hmm. if they could get the not necessarily just as big as Motorhead, but just the respect that Motorhead got in England back then, you know, that was kind of their goal. You know, who would have thought that they would, you know, far surpass Motorhead, <laughs> you know, as far as popularity goes. But back then, that was the key. It was to be the heaviest, fastest and, and loudest band, you know, and it was all about the speed back then. You know, uh, it was always this competition. I remember when Slayer came out, you know, we're the fastest band in the U.S. They used to advertise in my my fanzine, the headbanger. And, you know, it was this big thing as who could be the fastest and heaviest band in the U.S. And, you know, that was always Metallica's thing back then is uh, they they didn't want to be associated with the uh, typical L.A. band, not just the L.A. bands, but the American, you know, that back then, you know, we're talking 80, 81, 81, you know, it was all AOR rock, you know, mm -hmm. on the radio and stuff. So uh, that was something they didn't want to be associated with. And then, you know, the L.A. scene was Motley Crue and Rat was just bubbling up and, and Steeler, uh, which is Ron Keel's band and, and stuff like that. So, um, you know, playing a British style of music was kind of unheard of. You know, there was a, uh, you know, I, I had since discovered around that same time Armored Saint and, mm -hmm. and brought them to uh, the attention of Pat and, and Lars. And I, and I think Lars and James came down to one of their early Woodstock shows. And they were probably the closest thing to like a British style metal band uh, at that time. But uh, there weren't too many bands in L.A. Do that. There, there were a few. There were a few bands, you know, obviously covering Iron Maiden because Iron Maiden, after their debut, they had kind of made a uh, impact. So, they, you know, there were definitely a few bands that were that were kind of doing it, but not to the extent that Metallica was. But yeah, I mean, to answer your question, he, they had no clue. Uh, <laughs> we had no clue. I mean, we just thought we, we, I mean, we didn't even, I, I, to be honest, and I've said this before, those, those early shows were not really that good. <laughs> yeah. I, mean, I think they, they say that too. <laughs> yeah. Dave, Dave, Dave Mustaine was the most seasoned musician and, you know, Lars, you know, Lars, I mean, he was, he was great for what it was, but he just started playing drums, you know, mm -hmm. and, and, uh, uh, James was very, very shy. He didn't know if he wanted to sing or play guitar. So some shows he just sang, you know, some of those early shows he was just singing and he had like this high pitched voice, which you could hear on the early demos and stuff. And, uh, he didn't really come to his own until really until Ride the Lightning came out. So, uh, you know, those, those, uh, you know, those early days, I, I don't think they had a, had a clue. They, they didn't really quite have their direction or their confidence of, of where they were going. But, uh, you know, gradually it, 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 you know, especially when they came out to the Bay area, I think they, they got a lot more confidence because I remember seeing them, uh, a few months later, they ended up opening for uh, a Y and T at the Woodstock, uh, uh, yesterday and today. Uh, and, uh, on the, I think they had just put out the black, the black tiger record. And, uh, I had seen Metallica open up. I was like, holy shit, what happened? These guys are fucking great. You know? <laughs> and, at, so, and, at, and at that point, it's Cliff in the band, but still Dave? No, no, it was still Ron McGovney. Oh, Ron wow. Dave. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, so so prior to them moving up to the Bay. Even. Oh, yeah, yeah. This is still prior to them going up to the Bay. Wow. So you saw a bunch of those shows it, by the sound of it. And what I have heard and what my impression has been and what, what's been said on the podcast before even – and you just kind of alluded to it was that 
while James was singing, it was almost like Mustaine was the front man in a sense, he, right? He so, was. He was talking in between songs. And, you know, I, I, I just uh, was uh, uh, regarding your last comment. They had gone up to the Bay Area to do shows, but it was prior to the movie. Oh, gotcha. The okay. I thought you meant the move. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah. So it was, yeah, it was, they had done a couple shows there and they uh, came back to LA after they had done a few shows there and they got so much more confident. And, uh, uh, you know, then eventually, obviously, they moved to the Bay Area and got Cliff in the band. Uh, but to, yeah, to answer your question about Dave Mustaine, uh, yeah, he definitely was, you know, Dave, uh, uh, James was very shy. He didn't really, uh, uh, know how to talk to the audience, uh, I guess then, or, or, or wasn't comfortable doing it. So, you know, Dave was kind of acted as the front man. And, uh, you know, he had, he was in that band Panic that uh, I remember they played the Woodstock, uh, quite a bit. Did you, did you, uh, did you see Panic? I don't know. I can't remember because my buddy was telling me, yeah, dude, we went and saw them, went and saw Panic. But, you know, I used to see a lot of local bands then and a lot of them, uh, uh, you know, I, I might have caught a couple songs or whatever, or, you know, they didn't make an impact, but I, I don't recall if I did or not. I definitely remember the name, but, um, uh, yeah, I mean, Dave, Dave was really an aggressive, aggressive guy back then. And, uh, you know, when you mentioned about how they were back in those days, it was, uh, you know, I was kind of a mama's boy. I was, you know, 16, 17 and, you know, very, lived in a very conservative household and, in Huntington beach, I had to kind of sneak out sometimes. Mm -hmm. I, cause I had a curfew. I, you know, before I was, uh, uh, 18, I, you know, I was borrowing my mom's car and I had to be home by midnight. So I'd always have to leave early and, you know, oh, I, yeah. was I, I wasn't, I, I couldn't go in high school. I couldn't go to shows on school nights. <laughs> yeah. I still got away with it. I would you know, usually tell mom, go to a movie. Cause I, I made the mistake once uh, when I first went to the Woodstock with my cousin, I brought him along and I made the mistake of having my dad pick me up. And he saw the people outside. He goes, what the hell are you doing here? You know, so <laughs> I had to always say after that, oh, I'm going to see a movie. You know, I'll be home by midnight. You know? So yeah. I would always have to leave early. And I'd always tell everyone, oh, yeah, I'm going to a party or something. I'm going, you know, I didn't say, oh, I have curfew. I have to go home. So, you know, but I remember, you know, hanging out with the guys at Metallica in the parking lot at, uh, you know, the Woodstock and Radio City. They had that giant parking lot there. And everyone would be hanging out, drinking beer, smoking weed or whatever. And, uh uh, you know, they, they were pretty crazy. I was kind of nervous, you know, because uh, I didn't really drink much. I maybe have a beer or two. Pat didn't drink at all, my buddy Pat. So, uh, you know, it, it, you know, and, and and I remember Dave got pretty rowdy and pretty drunk a couple times. Uh, uh, you know, we'll just leave it at that. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, you know, you know, so yeah, being a kid, it's like oh, I can't, I can't get caught. You know, I, 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 I can't get arrested. You know, I better. Uh, you know, uh, so I, I, they didn't really hang out much, and they didn't really party. I think there were a couple parties that they did up in Hollywood with Brian Slagle. Uh, I think I went to one of them uh, with the Armored Saint guys, and uh, they did uh, do a, a couple parties. But it wasn't like you know you, you hear about those infamous parties in in uh, the, the the Bay Area, you know, mm -hmm. that they they had at the house at the El Cerrito house. It was it was nothing like. I mean, back then nobody knew who Metallica was, so the party was basically in the parking lot of you know about ten guys drinking beers, hanging out, you know, kind of thing. That was <laughs> yeah. the uh, yeah. Um, so did you did you write about Metallica in your fanzine or interview the corner? Yeah, I did. One of the first, uh, I think the first, well, incidentally, we did, uh, my buddy Patrick Scott, who I mentioned, and I did a L.A. metal review for Ron Quintana's Metal Mania. And he asked uh, us to do one, and we did it on uh, Metallica, Armored Saint, Rat, and Steeler, I think, were the four Amazing. bands. And that was the very first 
article ever published on Metallica. Uh, and then uh, a, a couple of months later, when I started the Headbanger in the first issue, I did a feature on uh, Metallica in that. But uh, by uh, by that time, there were you know the demo had already gotten out, and you know KG at Northwest Metal and uh, a few other fanzines, and maybe even in Europe, they were already starting to talk about Metallica. But yeah, we did. Uh, we wrote were the uh, first uh, first published uh, article on Metallica in uh, Metal Mania. That's so cool. Do you do you remember the first time you saw them with Cliff? You know, I didn't see them with Cliff until they came. Uh, I want to say the the Kill 'Em All for One tour. Mm-hmm. It was either that or they did a show with Armored Saint, actually opening for Armored Saint at the Country Club uh, before the infamous uh, Hollywood Palladium show on Ride the Light. So that, that we're yeah, we're still talking Kill 'Em All. They did they did the Country Club with uh, with Raven. And the country club with the uh, Armored Saint, I can't remember. I think the Armored Saint one was was prior, uh, and that I think was the first time I saw them with Cliff. Mm. Do you remember, um, you know, a noticeable shift in sort of what the dynamic was and the vibe? Oh, oh yeah. I mean, you know, I, I love Ron. He's a great guy, but I mean, he'll even tell you himself he wasn't really a, a seasoned bass player. He had just picked up the bass. Mm-hmm. He was roommates with. Um, uh, James, you know, they lived in. And the thing about Ron is they had, he had a house in, in, in like Downey, Norwalk Downey area that his parents had given him because, uh, it was like a condo and they built a, um, rehearsal area in the garage mm-hmm. there. And his parents knew the, the home was going to get torn down because this was just prior to them putting the 105 freeway in. And, uh, so they gave it to Ron, said, here, you take the condo and uh, do as you will. And James was living there. And, uh, so they hired, kind of hired Ron out of convenience. Hey, here's a guy. He's got his own studio. He's got a we place. Got- he had a van too, I think, right? He had a van. He had money. He had his mom's credit card. <laughs> so I decided they went up to the Bay Area. It all came down to Ron, you know, to, to you know, to buy, get the hotel rooms and to get the uh, van and to rent the truck and, and all that stuff. So, um, you know, they got him playing bass. And, uh, uh, but the first time I saw Cliff, um, yeah, there was definitely a, a dynamic change. I mean, uh, I, you know, huge change. Uh, we already knew Cliff from Trauma. Mm-hmm. We were aware of him. Uh, and I know Trauma did did a couple shows like at the Troubadour and stuff prior to, to uh, Cliff joining Metallica. And uh, so we were aware of his abilities and stuff. Uh, so it wasn't that much of a shock. Uh, but yeah, seeing him with, with Metallica, it was kind of weird. It's like, uh, who's this guy with, you know, bell bottoms and all right. that? Um, <laughs> and head banging, like really slow, like not really to, you know, it's kind of like, uh, does this guy really fit in? But God damn, could he play? You know, it was one of those things. So, uh, uh, it was, it was kind of like threw you off for a minute. It was, uh, uh, you know, different than most mm-hmm. metal bands, you know, to see some guy looking like that and especially, uh, you know, British, you know, soon to be thrash metal band, uh, British sounding thrash metal band. But, uh, uh, yeah, you know, it was, it was awesome. Those, those early shows. And I would imagine you were also familiar with Kirk, uh, before he joined the band or are new of Exodus or. I was, you know, again, I was in LA at that time. Um, I grew up, uh, you know, all around the LA area. I just recently moved up here to, uh, 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 the, the, the Bay Area. I'm in San Jose at the moment. Uh, but, uh, when I was there, I knew of Cliff, uh, Kirk. I never met him. 
Uh, in fact, I hadn't uh, really met him until after, you know, w well after he was in Metallica. Uh, uh, but I had known him in Exodus. I had the early Exodus demos, uh, you know, being a tape trader. So, yeah, I was definitely familiar with with his playing and who he was. Nice. Um, so let's talk a, then a, a bit about your trajectory. Where did uh, where did life take you, you know, after high school and all of that? And how did music continue to uh, inform who you were and how you ended up making films? Well, I, uh, you know, I, I was, like I said, started out doing the fanzine. And, uh, you know, it's, it's so funny, you know, doing this documentary and interviewing a lot of the people in the Bay Area. They're like, dude, I used to read the Headbanger all the time. It's, if I knew back then how big the Headbanger was, you know, that we got in, you know, I was talking to our co-producer, Danny, Danny Shipman. And he's going, dude, we, I used to pay, I used to, uh, there's a local record store in Watsonville, which is a small little town out by, you know, Monterey that, that he goes, uh, that I used to get the headbanger all the time, you know, and yeah, you hear stories like that. So, uh, the magazine actually got around. We had Green World and Important Distribution. I did that up until about 80, 85, 86. And, uh, then I started uh, writing for a lot of other magazines in particular. Um, uh, my other co-producer, uh, uh, John Stranansky had a magazine called the, Metal Rendezvous, and he started, it was a fanzine originally, started right when I started Headbanger, the same kind of thing, a Xerox fanzine, but uh, by the late, mid to late 80s, it became like a uh, color, full color, uh, glossy magazine, and he was doing about 120,000 uh, copies, so he was kind of competing, you know, just under, you know, like the, the Rip and the, you know, the uh, uh, Hit Paraders and all that, uh, so I was writing for a few other magazines like that, and uh then I started uh, at Roadrunner Records, I believe, in 91. I ran their L.A. office. So, oh, wow. I didn't know yeah. that. Uh, yeah. Like, I, I mean, the, <laughs> I was ready to have you on just from the documentary. Um, this is amazing, <laughs> the stuff that's coming out. Because so Roadrunner, you know, I'm uh, good friends with Monty Connor for a number of years at this point. Oh, yeah, and, and I know from talking, you know, from talking to him and a little bit about those old days and the Roadrunner Road Racer. And well, I mean. That had to be, I mean, were you the first L.A. employee? I mean, that had to be early, early days, right? Yeah, yeah, that was, I was the first, uh, uh, they might have had some West Coast, I know, like, like uh, uh, Dino from Fear Factory was kind of like a consultant to Monty, as was a, a good friend of mine, Kevin Estrada, who was a photographer. Oh, I know Kevin, yeah. Yeah, yeah, great guy. And uh, But I was like the first employee, they, had, they, they wanted to open up an L.A. office, and um, a, a friend of mine, John Sutherland, heard about that. And uh, that's when I moved up to L.A. from Orange County. I was uh, still living in Huntington Beach. And uh, uh, I had made the move up to L.A. Uh, and John said, hey, you know, Bob Nelbandian just moved uh, to L.A. And, you know, I knew Monty through my fanzine. And, you know, Case Wessels was familiar with me. Believe it or not, he was in Holland, but he knew of uh, the headbanger and, and yeah, all that. I believe it. Uh, so he's like, Hey, let's call Bob. So, uh, case was in LA. Uh, and he said, yeah, let's do it. So I just started, I got an apartment in, in Hollywood. I started working out of my apartment, uh, eventually went into a, uh, office, um, shared office space, uh, same building as the original, uh, deaf American records, nice. uh, Rick Rubin, uh, and yeah. right on sunset across from the Geffen records. I mean, uh, we were there for a bit, and, and then I started working for Herb Cohen's Bizarre Straight label, 
uh, Herb Cohen was kind of revamped the label. He started the label in the '60s with uh, Frank Zappa, mm-hmm. and uh, that was interesting. That was a, a, a fun, uh, a fun time. And you know, from then I, I got into a lot of different stuff, um, uh, music-wise. Uh, uh, still did a lot of writing uh, for other fanzines. Did some publicity here and there. Uh, independent. I'm trying to think of the time frame. 90s. Uh, I was writing for like a couple men's magazines and other stuff like that. Just doing a lot of freelance. I, you know, mm-hmm. I, I got. I didn't want to get tied down. I was kind of fed up with the, the industry even at that by the 90s. You know, uh, mid 90s, and it was just like, eh, you know, I kind of want to do my own thing. So I was kind of doing a lot of different uh, freelance stuff. Um, we did a metal nightclub in in like the late 90s with myself and. Uh, John Bush, who's a good friend of mine from our, he was yes. in Anthrax. At no, the of time. course, uh, you know, this isn't necessarily a popular opinion, but I, I mean, maybe it is in some circles, but Sound of White Noise is my favorite Anthrax album. I agree. Yeah. I, well, I would say Stomp 442, but the, 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 I like I that one. I, I, I like yeah. Sound of White Noise uh, better. And I, but I, and I also love We Come For You All, that record with yeah, great Bush album. Bush and, and Rob Casciano on it. Absolutely. Now, Bush was great for that band. I mean, he really changed the sound of the dynamics, but mm-hmm. it worked, you know. It and it fit the time, you know. It really, uh, you know, I think they kind of had to make a, that change, and I thought it was a smart decision getting John Bush. And you know, uh, I think he, you know, he he was fantastic. I'm unfortunately that, you know, that that the music. I, I don't think it was anything uh, to blame John for, but that music industry changed at that time, you mm-hmm. know, and. Electra had changed, and they yeah, were yeah. They had a new a new president, right? That came yeah, in and was like, and she yeah. was like, I don't. What's this anthrax Motley yeah, Crue stuff? Yeah, Let's get rid it's of like, these oh, guys. Right. We just get this, you know, ten million dollar deal with this label, you know, and then they switch out a new president that hates us. So this is this yeah. is going to work out well. So, <laughs> uh, so it really wasn't, you know, their their fault. Uh, I musically, I, I think a lot of metalheads agree. Uh, those are some of the best uh, Anthrax albums. But uh, anyway, you know, I getting back to that. We did a club called Black Lodge, uh, at, you know, for a little while. Speaking of Sound of White Noise. <laughs> yeah, that's where we got it from. Yeah, yeah. my other uh, partner, uh, Toby, Toby Bad. And we, we didn't know what we were doing. We just did it. We just said, you know what, let's do a metal club. Because this was, this was when metal was dead, 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 dead. There was nothing in L.A. supporting metal. We said, fuck it, let's just do a metal club. So we had fun with that and, and, and did all that. And uh, uh, then I got into doing uh, uh, Shockwaves uh, online uh, with, with Hard Radio. We, uh, Hard Radio was the first Internet radio station at that time. It was going to – at 96, I think they started. Wow. And uh, it was going to be a big deal back then. You know, this was obviously before before Napster really hit and all that. But, uh, uh, you know, did some stuff. Uh, and I still do the my podcast, I still do the Shockwaves Hard Radio podcast on hardradio.com. So I've, you know, had a, a long relationship with Tracy Barnes there, uh, you know, and uh, then started the Shockwave Skull Sessions and got into podcasting uh, uh, in, in the early 2000s, I guess. Wow. Uh uh, yeah, that's, a, so, that's another uh, thing where it's, I mean, that and <laughs> internet radio, when you think about all these things that had these kind of false starts years before yeah. they, they really kind of swung around. Yeah. I remember getting into listening to podcasts, um, around like 2009, 2010. And it was, it was, uh, you know, it was sort of like they were a relic of things that almost happened and then didn't happen. Yeah. Yeah. They were very very independent and a lot of people thought oh it's going to be huge but 
The problem with that, just like anything else, internet, radio, and everything, it just becomes so saturated. There's so many people that could do it, and there's just too, just like the music, the you know, the music industry today, anyone could put together a record, you know, <laughs> right. on, on, in their bedroom, you know. So it just becomes too saturated. It's a great thing that you could do it all yourself and for cheap and and whatever, just like podcasting. But now, you know, when we, yeah, when I started podcasts, there weren't that many. There weren't that many metal podcasts out no, there, you know. But certainly not. Now, yeah, now you know everyone and their mother has a podcast. So, yeah. When I when I started this podcast, there weren't any other Metallica podcasts, and then oh, there wow. and then there was one. A uh, friend of mine was starting. I mean, a couple months after I was starting to develop, and he actually got his out of the gate first. But now there's like six of them. <laughs> like there's oh, yeah. there's a lot of them, you know. And for any meaningful band, there's a lot of a lot of podcasts sure. that. So, yeah, and I think like with anything else, um, you know, whatever has a level of what the right word is I'm looking for, but, you know, cause credibility, some authenticity, like all those kind of magical elements that need to combine for a podcast to stand out over the others, just like a band would or a magazine back in the yeah. day. Um, so let's talk about the documentary series. And so you yeah. had you had that it sounds like you are you know one of the things that i think they say be you know to avoid being a jack of all trades and a master of none but i think one of the things that's benefited me the most in my life has been doing different things from different angles you know so i've, I've managed bands and i've interviewed bands i've written i've written for magazines i've worked on the tv side i've been behind the camera in front of the camera you know, and i feel like all those things kind of come together to inform one another and give me a little bit broader of a vantage point and it sounds like you have a very similar background where you know having worked in the publicity department having worked at record labels having done a diy magazine having freelance for you know big established magazines and um, you know internet radio and podcasting and filmmaking it, it, it sounds like all of that stuff was kind of a really absolutely natural evolution for you too yeah 100 percent. i i felt the same way i just want to be really well-rounded to know all aspects of of the music business and i man actually i i started out managing bands a, a band called oh, eden we had a we had a deal on enigma records enigma wrestlers records uh yeah enigma our, death angel yeah <laughs> yeah, exactly. It was uh, prior to Death Angel. It was 1986, wow. just prior to Death Angel. Uh, uh, we had, uh, had done that, and uh, and that kind of led me into doing uh, uh, the record company thing. But, yeah, I, I, I like doing that. And, and to answer your question, how I got into film, this all kind of brought me into fil into doing a documentary. It's like, well, you know, what's next? I'm doing the podcast, and, and uh, I got uh, a call. This was probably uh, 2011 or so. Uh, uh, Warren Croyle, who's the executive producer for uh, Metal Rock Films, who does the uh, 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 Inside Metal uh, documentary series. Uh, I said before he formed Metal Rock Films, actually Inside Metal kind of was the formation of Metal Rock Films, but mm -hmm. he had done uh, tons of movies, mostly uh, uh, a lot of sci-fi uh, documentaries, uh, Aliens and on um, Bigfoot, and uh, very successful at, at, at doing that throughout you know the late '90s into the in, into the 2000s. And uh, but he's an old school metalhead, and uh, I was good friends with uh, Joe Floyd. I had him on my podcast, the uh, guitarist uh, founder for Warrior, you know, fighting for the earth. One of my <laughs> yeah. Favorite albums. 
Uh, and uh, uh, Joe was a partner with Warren in a, in a studio called Silver Cloud, which was a big studio in L.A. I mean, a, a, actually a small studio, but big in the sense they did all the great metal bands, all the big local metal bands. Everyone uh, wanted to work with Joe because he was such an incredible producer. And uh, so, uh, you know, Warren brought up to him, hey, man, you know, we should do a documentary on the L.A metal scene and Joe said yeah you know and just kind of started working with him. he goes you know we we got to get Bob Nelbandy he's he's got to direct this so that's how I came together on that and it was kind of interesting because uh that was kind of the direction I wanted to go and then I kind of got a call from Joe saying hey you know my partner and I were planning on doing this and you know and, and it just kind of at the beginning it was just going to be you know they were just talking a, a documentary on the LA scene mm. and I said I'm all about that because you know, I was doing a, the Shockways video cast uh, on, on YouTube with my partner, uh, Carl Alvarez. We did, you know, interviews with Biff uh, yeah. and, uh, and Lizzie, with uh, Anvil, with uh, uh, Michael Schenker and uh, a bunch of people that was kind of getting a little bit of traction. I'm going, well, this is the next level. This is what I want to do. So I got full on involved in that. And uh, uh, that's how that started. And, you know, um uh, I know I'm babbling here, but no, uh, no, this is what we do uh, here. I love how it. we, uh, <laughs> I love it. Okay. Yeah. How, how we started is, uh, I, I told him, I said, look, if we're going to do this, I want to do it right. I want to go from the beginning, you know, from that Van Halen era. Cause there was never anything talked about. This is prior to MTV prior to the you know, whole LA metal scene kind of exploding and all that. So, uh, I want to do something on the late seventies scene, the Starwood. You know, all these old clubs at Van Halen and Quiet Riot with Randy Rhodes. I mean, these guys were the kings of the Sunset Strip. And there were other, you know, a lot of other bands that I used to go see all the time. Snow, a la carte, you know, uh, uh, you know, Greg Leon Invasion. Uh, you know, there were bands like Smile that were a little uh, uh, more commercial. and uh, But so many bands that were packing the places. I said, let's start out there and, uh, you know, then have that lead into you know, the, the L.A. scene when the, when the L.A. scene exploded with Motley Rat and all that. So first title is uh, Pioneers of L.A. Hard Rock and Metal. Uh, a lot of people love that title because they said, man, this is a scene I never even knew existed in L.A. Mm. Uh, you know, so uh, we got really deep into that. That goes from about 75 into 1981. Then the, and, and they're all two-part movies, which is kind of confusing for everyone. Uh, and that just came about <laughs> because it fit it all in one movie. I kept given uh, a Warren edits and they're like five hours long and four hours long. He's like, dude, we need a 90 minute movie. And I got, I, dude, I can't make it into a 90 minute movie. It, it loses the story, you know? And I, I just kind of follow with him about it. He goes, you know, well, fuck it. Just make it into a two volume uh, uh, movie. And I said, wow. All right, cool. You know, so all the movies are two volumes. So uh, uh, the first being the uh, Pioneers of L.A. Hard Rock and Metal. The second, the L.A. Metal Scene Explodes, which is roughly around 82 to 86. And I wanted to end it at 86 because that's when the, you know, just before the whole hair metal scene just got kind of ridiculous. And, yeah. And all that stuff has been told. I mean, everyone knows about Poison and, uh, you know, uh, Warrant and Guns N' Roses. I mean, I don't need to repeat all that. So we kind of cut it off right at the beginning of, you know, when Guns N' Roses was playing the clubs, blah, blah, blah. So uh, and when we get into a lot of the, uh, you know, more underground, more obscure bands that aren't really talked about, not just these quote unquote hair metal bands. And then for the third one, I said, you know what, man, let's do something on the L.A. thrash scene, because that was always overlooked. Everyone always thought of L.A. as just a hair metal capital. And of course, San Francisco, the Bay Area, mm -hmm. you know, took 
research on thrash metal, and I said, but there were so many great thrash bands. So the third title is uh, The Rise of L.A. Thrash Metal. And by the way, all of them are available on Amazon, and Amazon Prime, <laughs> I got to give that plug out. Oh, yeah. Links, links to all of this in the show notes, too. Perfect, perfect. <laughs> yeah, you could actually view all the movies on Amazon Prime and a lot of other digital formats. But uh, so we did that. Um, and, you know, it's funny because while this, this does lead into the Bay Area Godfathers, I know we haven't even talked about that yet. But it, uh, when, <laughs> when I was it. doing a lot of the interviews, obviously, with, with Metallica, with Lars, with uh, uh, members of, you know, a, a Slayer, Suicidal, Megadeth, a Dark Angel, uh, you know, they were all talking about going, you know, doing their first shows up in the Bay Area and how how receptive the Bay Area was to them, you know, and. So we had all this footage about the Bay Area, and it was like, you know, that was the obvious next step. I said, you know what? I've got all this great footage on the Bay Area. Let's do a fourth title and do it on the Bay Area metal scene, not just thrash metal, but on the whole, you know, kind of in the same format that we did the L.A. metal titles, uh, you know, kind of from beginning to end. Uh, but in one movie, two actually two, two, uh, two parts, one movie, two parts uh, on the Bay Area scene. Uh, so we started out with those quotes. Uh, and then I, I eventually moved up to uh, up here in Northern California uh, with a buddy uh, who has done all the film, uh, a lot of the filming here, hooked up with the guys in Reality Check TV, Danny Shipman, my co-editor, who's an old school Bay Area guy. And, of course, John Stranansky, who I mentioned before, mm -hmm. from Metal Rendezvous, an old uh, Bay Area guy, because I wanted to get a Bay Area team to do this. Uh, and uh, Danny Shipman uh, was the editor along with Hugh from Reality Check. And we had a really good team of people that grew up in that scene of the Bay Area. And that's, that was always important to me. All the people I had involved from from the co-producers to the editors uh, were all diehard metal fans like me. So I could uh, just, you know, say, hey, you know, that, that one photo with Lars put that. Oh, yeah, I know the one. You know, they right. you, know, you don't have to explain to them who 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 is in the band, you know, so. um uh yeah that's that's how we did you, that. you don't and have to just, explain the difference between death angel and dark angel <laughs> exactly exactly so um, yeah so that's kind of that's about. killer yeah so what were some of the things that you know in setting out to make this godfather's one what what were some of the things that you were important for you to make sure that you capture that your documentary told that maybe hadn't been told before or told in just the way that you would want to tell it or that sort of thing I think the key thing and 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 what we uh, did with the Bay Area Godfathers is we talked about the entire uh, metal, hard rock and metal scene, uh, that whole genre of hard rock and metal in the Bay Area, where most documentaries or most art articles or whatever written about the Bay Area metal scene is, is all concentrated on thrash. Mm -hmm. So, like I said, we kind of took the formula of the L.A. titles. We started early on with Yesterday and Today. You know, a lot of people don't know. They started gigging in 1974. So I, uh, I, did, I didn't know that till you just said it. That's crazy. Yeah, they were playing, yeah. you know, Winterland. You could actually see footage from them at at uh, one, one of the Winterland shows, uh, uh, Bill Graham shows in, in 1974. Uh, and so they were a staple on, on the scene. And, you know, of course, we talked to Mike Varney, who was an icon of, of the uh, Bay Area hard rock and metal scene. Of course, he was in a band called The Nuns, one of the original punk bands from the Bay Area. And then he started Shrapnel Records, which uh, really got the ball rolling. That's kind of what put the Bay Area metal scene on the map with the U.S. metal 
uh, record compilation. That was prior to Brian Slagle doing the uh, uh, Metal Massacre series oh, on wow. Metal Blade, which launched his his label. So, you know, we're talking 1980 here. And uh, uh, so we start in from that era, talk about some of the old 70s bands, what led into uh, what the Bay Area scene became. And when Metallica came over, you know, we really get into how when Metallica came, o- Metallica came over from uh, L.A., uh, and did those uh, first initial shows in the Bay Area. And uh, uh, so we get cover the whole gamut. We do the glam bands. We, you know, we interview guys from, we interviewed Davey Vane, guys from Jet Boy, uh, bands like Stone Vengeance, who uh, not many people talk about. Again, around since the late 70s, an all-black hard rock metal band who were who are a big staple band in, in the uh, San Francisco scene. Strange they aren't talked about. Laws Rocket, who were huge yeah. back then on the local scene. Uh, you know, I remember uh, seeing Laws Rocket ads in the metal magazines a lot, too. Yeah, they, they, they were, were always um, kind of like right there beneath the surface, it seemed like, within you know when when you're when you're like a band's band within a scene that's already not in the mainstream <laughs> it's, yeah there were a lot of those bands they they had a big big following but they weren't quite thrash they weren't quite glam they were kind of in between and you had you know bands like vicious rumors too uh you know but they they were big bands you know heathen uh damage yeah. he, he, so uh, heathen just put out a comeback record yeah, they did. And they're, they're, you know, taking off in Europe, uh, you know, doing quite well. Same with Vicious Rumors. Uh, you know, a lot of those bands do well overseas, but locally and here in the States, not too people know about them. Everyone knows about the thrash and that, that kind of bugged me and, and, and John Stranansky because we're both, you know, uh, you know, we love thrash, but we're into all, all the, the, the genres of metal and we, we're friends with a lot of these great metal bands and people forget how big these guys were. They were some of the biggest dry, you know, these are the bands that Metallica used to open up for back in, in the day. So mm-hmm. we wanted to tell that story. We want to tell the real story of the whole San Francisco state scene, starting from the, you know, uh, really going from the late seventies into the late eighties. And uh, so we, we cover the whole gamut. We talked to a lot of guys, uh, you know, record store owners, you know, promoters, uh, of course, a, a lot of musicians, journalists, uh, you know, a record company, you know, Mike Varney, uh, people like that. So uh, uh, we really tried to make it a little bit different than, you know, the, the, the uh, uh, typical documentaries on, on the Bay Area scene. So what's coming up next for you after that? Because you sound like you're <clears throat> unrelenting. Well, <laughs> you're, never, you're not going to stop. Yeah. I guess kind of sort of, I mean, New York is kind of, you know, uh, the obvious choice to be next on, on the table. Um, you know, obviously we don't have, we don't have a big budget, the kind of budget that, uh, uh, you know, uh, you know, from a major, uh, uh, source. Uh, so it's very independent. So, uh, you know, financially it's going to be difficult now, you know, of course, with the whole COVID thing and the traveling and there's no live shows, uh, it's, it's going to be a challenge. Uh, there's no question about it. And to go to New York, I'd have to travel out there, do interviews. Um, you know, uh, we'll see, we'll see what happens. It's, it's a lot, it's a lot of work, man, for what it's worth. It's a lot of work. It's fun mm-hmm. though. I enjoy it. And this, these were great. Cause you know, uh, being, uh, living in LA, doing the LA scene, I was local. I grew up on that scene, Bay area scene. Like I said, I'm, I'm, I'm actually up here now. And I have a whole team of people in the Bay Area. So it was easy, easy access to put this together. And uh, uh, so, uh, you know, to do others, you know, Warren's talked about, you know, do, you know, 
carrying on and doing it. It's like, yeah, well, you know, if I'm going to do it, it's got to be done right. That's kind of my thing. And, uh, to do it right is, is, is a lot of work and it's, uh, um, you know, time consuming, uh, interviewing and getting, getting the right people involved. So we'll, we'll kind of see. We're, we're just going to kind of enjoy, uh, uh, the release of, of Bay Area Godfathers and, uh, kind of see where it takes us. I mean, I'd love to do one on the new wave of British heavy metal. Oh know, yeah. See. That'd be awesome. Yeah. Fantastic. But you know, uh, and I got people out there, they're like, Hey, you can stay with me in England and this and that. I got people in New York and you can stay with me in New York and I've got an editing facility. I could do this. So, you know, uh, I'm so, uh, fortunate that I've had some great people involved. Like I said, with this, uh, this, uh, Bay area Godfathers, we've got Danny Shipman from reality check TV, uh, and, and Hugh from Reality Check TV that had uh, done the editing. And as I mentioned, Danny uh, co-produced and they provided all this great footage because I didn't have a lot of footage on the Bay Area scene. Mm. They had all this great footage from Reality Check TV it says, you know, we could use that. So that was a godsend having the, them involved. And of course, John Stranansky, he got me in touch. He knows all the Bay Area guys personally growing up here. He saw all the early uh, Bay Area metal shows uh, uh, from from back in the day. So uh, he knew all these guys. We uh, had, a, had a fantastic team and the people, the photographers, all the people, Ron Quintana, contributed tons of old flyers so whenever we talk about the sh a show in the documentary we have a flyer there to show you know and uh, uh yeah so many great photographers uh you know kevin estrada who i mentioned uh uh john Har uh, john harrell uh uh, uh, uh bill hale you know oh uh, yeah bill hale's TV. book it's very cool oh, classic yeah so uh you know, all them, you know, they all contributed photos and stuff uh, for us. So, you know, we like I said, we don't have a big budget. So it's 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 a little bit more challenging for us to put put these uh, together because, as you know, uh, the the movie industry, like the, uh, the, the record industry, uh, you know, there's there's not the big money. You know, there's not mm -hmm. the DVD sales like there used to be. It's all streaming these days. So, which is great. It gets the movie out there. Uh, it's not as financially beneficial. Uh, the other thing that really sucked is this movie. We had this movie done both part one and part two. We had done back in January. We actually premiered it at the NAMM show at the uh, hall of heavy metal. I keep saying the hall of heavy metal history. It's now called the uh, heavy metal hall of fame. Pat Gizwaldo, uh mm -hmm. does a great award show during NAMM. Uh, a really great festivity that he has in uh, uh, Anaheim. Uh, and we uh, screened the movie uh, part one, or at least part of part one, I should say, uh, prior to that. So, uh, you know, we had the movie done since then, and we were planning on doing a bunch of screenings starting in March, a big one in, in San Francisco. Uh, we had them planned, uh, you know, all over California, L.A., Sacramento, uh, Orange County, uh, Vegas, uh, can't had to cancel them all, obviously due to COVID. So, um, you know, so we've just kind of been sitting on this uh, uh, until now, until next week, October sixth, the official release date of part one. So uh, we're really excited, and uh, you know, everyone's kind of been impatient to to see this and uh, finally getting it out. So I love yeah. it. I love it. Well, congrats, and um, thanks so much for coming on here. I, you know, probably have you back at some point, probably enlist some of your friends. Um, it's uh it's been so great to hear about your whole trajectory and um of course the early days and also what's happening now and that documentary um which like i said i'll 
I'll be dropping all kinds of plugs for all the stuff that's up on Amazon and, and all of that um, in the intro. So I'll make sure people know Absolutely. what to watch. And I'm looking forward to seeing that myself. October. Yeah, we'll have part two. Part two will probably come. You know, we were, we usually get a couple months apart, but seeing that'll be coming real close into the holidays. I would I would suspect we'll have part two out the beginning of the new year, and uh, I will nice. get you a an advance to that one as well uh, once we get those that set up. Um, and that's going to really get into the nitty gritty, into the debauchery and uh, get really into the individual bands, uh, a lot more. And, uh, you know, usually part two really gets, uh, gets a lot grittier than the part right. one. So yes. uh, that'll be a fun. That's going to be, again, a full movie uh, coming out on DVD and streaming 90 minutes. The DVDs are great. If you want to, or, uh, you know, uh, I, I suggest you buy the DVD. It's got some great bonus material. And uh, that's available at Amazon uh, or will be October 6th, Amazon, Best Buy, Walmart, all the, you know, I guess everyone goes online these days. But I know there are some record stores. I know Rasputin has carried Mm -hmm. uh, inside metal titles in the past and some other record stores I've seen. So, uh, you know, support your independent record stores, too. You could probably buy it there as well. Absolutely. Awesome. Well, thanks so much, man. Keep in touch. I will let you know when when this goes up and so we can push it all out and everything. And um yeah, this has been a lot of fun. I really appreciate it. All right. It. Well, thank you. I really appreciate your support, Ryan. All right, brother. I'll talk to you. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye.